This meeting is being recorded. Can everyone see my screen? Can everyone hear me? Ali, you're muted. We can't hear you. Oh, sorry. Can everyone hear me now? Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Politics Under the Microscope. In our third episode, we covered racially equitable access to the COVID-19 vaccines with Reverend Diane Holt, a governor-appointed member of the COVID-19 Vaccine Distribution Task Force. While it's imperative to recognize and address the barriers to racially equitable vaccine access, it's critical to also recognize the disabled population and the barriers they face when accessing not just information pertaining to the vaccines, but also to the pandemic and public health-related information as well. Today, I am here with Philip P.J. Mariachi, a disability integrated Specialist with the Federal Emergency Management Agency, or FEMA for short. I am also joined by Vivian Ayalon Rivera, a civil rights attorney with the Office of Equal Rights within FEMA. PJ is deaf and we will best provide interpretation of his signing with a voice. Hi, PJ and Vivian. It's great to have you here today. Could you tell us a little about yourself, your background, your education, your work experience, and what you both currently do for FEMA? PJ, would you like to start us off? Okay. Well, my name is PJ Mariachi. Everyone calls me PJ, even though technically my name is Philip. I was born and raised in Philadelphia. I was born deaf as well. My parents are hearing, really everyone in my family's hearing, and they found out when I was two or three years old, this is back in the mid 70s, they found out that I was deaf and there was no early screening at that time. They noticed in my behavior that there was difficulty with communicating. And then it was determined that I was deaf. Now at that time, there was the option of either going the signing route or the oral speech reading route. But my parents decided to put me into the Pennsylvania school for the deaf from K to eighth grade. And at that time, I wanted to experience the great wide world. I would want to try my hand at what's referred to as mainstream. Uh, being around the dominantly hearing students who didn't sign, that was my first experience being in that type of environment. And it was challenging navigating through that environment. But 90% of the world are hearing individuals who don't have much association with the deaf or hard of hearing individuals. I was mainstreamed into Lincoln High School in Philadelphia. There were around 2,000 hearing individuals in that class. And I took classes where an interpreter was provided. And overall, it was a positive experience going through the mainstream environment. From there, I went to Gallaudet University in Washington, D.C. It's the only liberal arts college for deaf and hard of hearing students in the United States. And I got a degree in government, undergrad in government. And I really liked the government because my parents were very active in the community. That was something that was pretty much built into my DNA, this interest in politics. From there, after Gallaudet, I stayed in Washington and went to George Washington University. And I attended the Grad School of Political Management. And that helped me to focus on developing relationships in government in the local government and facilitating activity in that government, learning how to lobby, dealing with various political organizations, as well as political fundraising. So that was my master's degree. After that, in Philadelphia, I worked at Temple University as an outreach coordinator for the deaf and hard of hearing. This was in the early 2000s. I wanted to be more involved in the wider community. So from there, I was an instructor at Gallaudet University and developed courses for local and state government. Growing up in that school and having undergrad courses, it was mostly focused on the federal side of government. 
but not so much local or state government. And that was a very important part that was overlooked. It's important for folks to understand and not overlook that aspect of government. And I'm sure you've heard the expression, all politics is local. And that's what was keyed in on. And they were very successful. From there, I decided to work for a huge nonprofit. My focus was on communication access at the local level in Philadelphia and the Southeast Pennsylvania region. And that led me to FEMA, working for the government. Really, as far as my getting involved, I had no mentorship or no one really encouraged me to try to get in with FEMA. That was something that I did on my own. There was an opportunity that came up in 2015 and I was able to take advantage of that. And I have to say, I really enjoyed working with FEMA. I work in what's referred to as FEMA Region 3. And my title is Regional Disability Integration Specialist, or artist, as it's called. Region 3 covers the states of Pennsylvania, Delaware, Maryland, Virginia, West Virginia, as well as Washington, D.C. We provide support during disasters for states along those lines. It's what I typically do. And I have to say, I'm not only focused on the deaf and hard of hearing segments of the disability community, but the entire disability community. Persons who are blind, persons with autism, persons with hearing loss, those with permanent and temporary disability. And you may wonder what that is exactly. Well, you think about a woman who's pregnant and she may have difficulty as far as from a certain disaster or someone on dialysis and they may be concerned about their treatment and um, the machine getting interrupted during a disaster. So I make sure that they have a plan for taking care of persons with disabilities in the event of such an event. A lot of times, local emergency management can overlook those who have different disabilities. I tend to focus on three pillars for inclusivity, physical access, programmatic access, as well as effective communication. And again, those pillars apply to all persons with disabilities. So PJ, you bring up something that our podcast is really passionate about, which is mentorship. And so from what I understood, you didn't have a lot of mentorship opportunities or didn't receive as much mentorship. And so as someone who is deaf and hard of hearing, like a student, for example, what kind of efforts are currently in place to provide these students with mentorship? Because it is so integral to our success, as you know, rising scientists, rising educators, rising community leaders, etc. And so are you aware of any efforts that are currently in place to help students that are in that position? Well, really mentorship is always there, but you need to know where to look. And unfortunately, my vision was rather narrow at the time, not knowing who or who those individuals were or where to find them. I think in the late 90s, early 2000s, uh, we, we didn't have the social media then that we do now. Right now, there's an organization on Facebook called Deaf and Hard of Hearing in Government, which can provide mentorship opportunities. And we didn't have that when I was in school. For persons that are deaf and hard of hearing who want to become teachers, I can tell you about my wife who works at the Pennsylvania School for the Deaf, so I'm very familiar with this. There are lots of mentorship opportunities in that segment of the population. Those are there and ready for one to take advantage of. I just wasn't aware of those in my field. That was in the late 90s, early 2000s, but they are available. Vivian, would you be willing to provide your background and your educational expertise and how you got to where you are today? Yes, good afternoon, everyone. And with FEMA, I'm, a, I'm an attorney. I am original from Puerto Rico. So uh, I've been with FEMA 
for more than three years, almost uh, four years since the Maria struck the island. That's when I began working with FEMA. Vivian is referring to Hurricane Maria, a deadly Category 5 storm that devastated Puerto Rico and nearby islands in 2017. So uh, I began working with FEMA within the Office of Equal Rights and our Office of Equal Rights, especially in the division that I am, the Civil Rights Division, since I'm right now the Civil Rights um, Lead for the Region 3 COVID-19 response, is to ensure the non-discrimination on the grounds of race, color, religion, national origin, sex, age, disability, English proficiency or economic status in the delivery of FEMA programs, services, and benefits. So our Office of Equal Rights is required to ensure that FEMA, together with our state, local, tribal, and territorial partners, as well as non-governmental organizations engage in the emergency and disaster relief activities and accomplish the FEMA activities in an equitable and impartial manner. So our cadre is the principal office responsible for compliance with and enforcement of the civil rights laws and obligations in connection with the programs and services provided by FEMA and by recipients of FEMA financial assistance. So that's as PJ mentioned, we work everything also ensuring accessibility, not only physical accessibility, also programmatic and communications accessibility. And in, in regards with disability, we are the enforcement part and disability integration is the actionable part. So uh, that, that will be my background and my duties within FEMA. I'd like to ask a follow-up question to what Vivian said, because we are in this pandemic, which is pretty unprecedented. And so what have you seen or what have you really learned firsthand that you haven't had before COVID-19? For me, it's the, the impact that all the efforts and, and the accessibility that we as FEMA and our different divisions have been bringing to the communities, that community partnerships, especially in the communities with disabilities, the hard, uh, the deaf and hard of hearing community, but the accessibility. So everyone can have access to, to the vaccination, to our service. And that has been key in all this process uh, within the response of COVID-19. So yes, I think that that's one of the biggest things and the biggest impacts that we have had in, in this COVID-19 response. What are the specific barriers that the deaf and hard of hearing community face when accessing the vaccine? You know, what about with the COVID-19 pandemic in general, access to public health related information and items like that? So in relation to COVID, when that happened, for example, COVID-19, just that word itself, there was no real concept of a sign even for it. When it first started, because really there was a lot of collaboration and discussion about what is COVID. You know, how does it spread? And how do we create a sign for that? So prior to COVID, there was a challenge with health literacy. When PJ says sign, he's referring to American Sign Language or ASL, which is expressed by movements of the hands and face. As of 2019, it's the primary language spoken by around 1 million North Americans who are deaf and hard of hearing. 
So there's a lot of reasons for that. Like I grew up in a deaf community. I saw a lot of older deaf that never, almost never, would go to a doctor's office or a hospital. You know, they would just avoid it. And so, you know, maybe it was because there was a lousy interpreter or there were other reasons why they would avoid it. So I saw that growing up and sometimes there's no interpreters available. So that's one barrier in the community. Also, if you notice on TV stations, the interpreter will maybe be there, maybe at a press conference, but then they only narrow in on the person speaking and the interpreter is out of frame. So then people that are deaf or hard of hearing, you know, and English isn't their first language, maybe they're forced to have to read the captions and they feel like it's not where their skill set is. And it seems like, you know, English is just a priority language, but ASL is their primary language of choice. So they miss this important information that is given out. Also, information can kind of get jumbled up through different rumors that spread in the community. A lot of people thought, you know, if they went to go get the vaccine, they had to pay. And I asked, where did you get that information from? And they said, oh, someone told me that I had to pay for the vaccine. So it's still happening now as a barrier in the community. So there's just a disparity in what kind of information is given out. So that's why outreach is a huge effort that we work in. So it's the same thing. And the disability community, the challenge is that we're playing catch up with getting information out to these individuals. But the deaf community has even a further lag on that. Can I ask a follow up to that uh, regarding the potential connection between vaccine hesitancy and barriers for the deaf and hard of hearing community? Can you speak a little bit to that connection or that link? Oh, of course. So I've seen a lot of deaf schools that have staff that's vaccinated, maybe teachers or adjunct or administrators, but really the general population, there's a barrier. Especially with the older deaf and hard of hearing, they might not have access. So they might have a fixed income, they might not have a computer or internet access. They might be isolated, so there's a barrier for them receiving that information. Secondly, some deaf individuals who are hesitant about getting the vaccine you know, they don't have complete information to give informed consent on proceeding with getting it. There's also not enough deaf and hard of hearing medical professionals. And so now that we've characterized the, the barriers to accessing not just the vaccine, but COVID-19 related information as well, how have both of you and or FEMA worked to overcome these barriers and what are some current and ongoing efforts? So, for example, I work closely with the city of Philadelphia in different populations and different groups of people with different disabilities so that we're ready to partner with them and support them. Also, we set up ASL interpreters and in Philadelphia, they brought in what are called Certified Deaf Interpreters or CDIs. And many people didn't know who they were and what their role was. So in Philadelphia, that was a challenge because there were a lot of deaf people that didn't have access to information or they had limited English proficiency, so they depended on ASL. There are different dialect signs for individuals in the city of Philadelphia as well. So they might have come into the vaccination center and felt a little bit nervous and hesitant and they weren't really sure. Oh, is there going to be someone that understands me? Is it just going to be a hearing interpreter that doesn't understand me? Also, I partnered with Overbrook School of the Blind, and the president called me and said, in Philadelphia, we have a lot of adults who are in our transition program, and they're hesitant to go into the city. And then we explain, oh no, 
we're going to have a certified deaf interpreter there to facilitate communication during the vaccination. And then they feel relieved and they're done within 15 minutes and it's not a long drawn out process for them. They sit and then they rest for that 15 minutes after they get the vaccination and then they go. So we kind of overcame that barrier in that manner by using CDIs. Also, I partnered with Overbrook School of the Blind and the president called me and said, in Philadelphia, we have a lot of adults who are in our transition program and they're hesitant to go into the city. They don't know where it is. They don't know how to navigate that. So they preferred to go into Overbrook, into the school. They knew the structures in that area. So I connected with Philadelphia and they said, oh, okay, what can we do to make this work? So the end result was that we had a mobile vaccination unit come to Overbrook School for the Blind. And the adults in the transition program are in between 20 to 22. So all of them came in, about 70 to 78 individuals came in. So we overcame that barrier. Also, we hosted a deaf day and I actually didn't come up with that. Philadelphia came up with that. The Archdiocese of Philadelphia were involved in Pennsylvania School for the Deaf as well. They contacted me about vaccinations in the area. And so we provided more interpreters there and that day about 30 people came in. So that was just a good example of overcoming the barriers presented. We mentioned before that there are some deaf and hard of hearing individuals that do not know ASL. And so how did they come into the clinic or get vaccinated? What are the barriers that they face and how can we overcome those? Yeah, it was a challenge. Well, for one thing, I really wish people were aware that not all deaf and hard of hearing individuals know sign language. There are segments of the deaf and hard of hearing population, those who are perhaps late deaf or for whatever reason chose to rely on speech reading. And there is no rule as far as this type of communication goes. It's whatever one is comfortable with. But one issue has been face masks, which have been widely challenging because even with the sign language, facial expressions are a very important part of American sign language grammar. But for persons who are hard of hearing, the challenge is even greater because their ability to speech read is pretty much off the table with the mask up. So there are certain deaf and hard of hearing organizations that created masks that were transparent in order to allow these individuals to speech read. But distribution of those masks was limited, even though there were efforts to do so. I'll give you an example about what happened with one speech reading woman who didn't get a wink of sleep the previous night because she was anxious about not being able to communicate at the vaccination center. If you recall, I mentioned a certified deaf interpreter that was working there at the community vaccination center. This individual happened to be a late deaf person too. Even though he did sign, he learned how to speech read growing up as well. And while practicing social distancing, he backed up a bit from the interaction, pulled his mask down so that he could help facilitate the speech. And not even a moment after that, the woman's anxiety left her and she was able to go through the vaccination process. So again, there are just so many methods of access that FEMA has looked to provide at the vaccination centers. Now, it just so happened, we were blessed to have a CDI that had that experience at that particular site, but we were able to facilitate that vaccination and relieve that woman's anxiety. It sounds like a lot of these efforts are individual. 
I'm just wondering if there are policy changes that could happen to ensure that there are CDIs at every vaccination clinic or in the doctor's office, you know, ones that are very good at ASL, unlike the lousy ones that you mentioned earlier. And so are you aware of any kind of policy initiative to kind of make this a more collective effort instead of a more individual effort? In the state of Pennsylvania, where I live, there's a law called Act 57. It says that the interpreter must be certified. That's a requirement. So there's an effort to spread awareness of the usage and value of CDIs. And FEMA, incidentally, does have staff members who themselves are certified deaf interpreters too. They work at the FEMA headquarters. Perhaps you've seen at certain press conferences from headquarters and there's a deaf individual signing. Well, that individual is themselves a CDI and he is positioned next to whomever the speaker is. And it's very important to take advantage of the skills of the CDI. And I'd like to see that happen more and more. Of course, it's still an issue. It's something we can't force other areas to do. But all we could do is try to increase the awareness of the service. Absolutely. Vivian, do you have any comments on how you and your work has been able to address or overcome some of the barriers that we mentioned? Yes, we enforce accessibility for people with different disabilities, including uh, deaf and hard of hearing. That's why we have all those ASL sign language interpreters in our vaccination centers and in all our disasters. And also I would love for PJ to, to talk about the videos that uh, have been made in ASL for example, for the CDC in Maryland, in collaboration with the state and the local government, they made an ASL video of the facilities. And actually one of the persons that went to the CDC to get vaccinated mentioned to our staff that the only reason that uh, he decided and get motivated to go to the center was because of that video. So that's the importance of all of these efforts in order to make people more relaxed and have that confidence to go to our centers to get vaccinated. If I could add a bit to what Vivian was saying there, we have been encouraging states to produce their own videos. And these videos are distributed through social media, Twitter, Facebook, and they're shared among the deaf community from these platforms. And as a result of that, they're encouraged to go and get their vaccine. A lot of times, print media doesn't do the job. So my next question focuses more on an ideal situation. You know, what can we do or what should be done to overcome these barriers? We talked about current and ongoing efforts and the ones especially that have been very effective like the ASL videos, but looking more into the future, what do you guys think should be done or can be done to enable access and increase inclusivity? Well, I do have a few talking points here that I'd like to mention. One thing we can do is really put the pressure on the TV stations to make sure that their broadcasts are interpreted. Letters can be sent to the NAB, the National Association of Broadcasters, to make sure that all of their programs are captioned, particularly when emergency warnings are given or scrolled. A lot of times those are blocked by regular captions. So one thing that we could do is that if an emergency message is broadcast and it was automatically moved to another portion of the screen so that the information can be relayed and not cut off, we'd also like to find ways to increase partnerships with the National Association of the Deaf and Centers for Independent Living who cater to all persons with disabilities. The parent advocacy groups, FEMA, the state, legislative representatives, and we could have some type of 
of a symposium, perhaps something biannually, to discuss these matters and learn what the best practices are. We can encourage them to make changes and improve their emergency preparedness at a local level. We'd also like to see more persons with disabilities hired to work in emergency management on a local and state level as well. Someone with a disability or with hearing loss, maybe communication access as well, but most importantly, we want to keep our minds and hearts open to what persons with disabilities have to say and listen to what their input is and not discount anything that they suggest or fail to listen to what it is they have to say and instead put those suggestions that they have into the emergency preparedness plan. As for myself, I am an educated individual, but still, I've learned quite a bit from persons who don't necessarily have that formal education, but of course, they're experts in their own rights. So it's important to keep one's mind and hearts open to the input of those with disabilities. They are experts of their own disability. Vivian, do you have any um, comments on what you think can and should be done in an ideal world to um, rectify these barriers and to tear them down? Yes, of course, I completely agree with what PJ have, have said. I think that we also need more education, more awareness, uh, more empathy also with the deaf and hard of hearing community. If I could just add one more thing, COVID was especially challenging because even before COVID, information tended to be distributed in person. And since COVID occurred, that aspect of information sharing was just gone. So we need to find a new way to prepare individuals with disabilities. So let's hope this doesn't happen again. But we need to find another way to make sure that the information is given effectively to persons with disabilities in the deaf and hard of hearing community. What can someone like me or someone like the other hosts of this podcast who are hearing, what can we do to improve access for the deaf and hard of hearing? You know, how can we advocate for this community and what have been some previous efforts to do so? What maybe makes some of those efforts effective and others ineffective? Actually, listening and hearing what the, the deaf and hard of hearing uh, needs to say and what are their needs and especially be more sensitive, more empathic with, with, their, with that population, especially in, in previous disasters and working in, in the COVID-19 situation, uh, response with PJ and, for example, in Puerto Rico, I participated in a training uh, with the first group of deaf and hard of hearing population in Puerto Rico. They were trained uh, on uh, everything, community uh, response and preparedness. And I think that we need to begin listening, actually listening to them, uh, to their needs on how we can help them uh, being more an advocate for this community. And, and I think that that's the main point in, in all of this, begin hearing. As for something else that could be done, if I could just relate a quick little anecdote. A friend of mine asked me to teach an ASL level one class and there was a student there that was interested in becoming a sign language interpreter. And all of these students prior to this class had no knowledge whatsoever of sign language. So that first day, typically an interpreter is provided. 
but in the following weeks, there's no interpreter provided. And I asked the students why they wanted to learn sign language, and several of them gave pretty much a similar answer, that they wanted to learn sign language so that they could help deaf people. And my response to them is, well, thank you, but we don't need your help. Did we ask for your help? Did you help me as far as purchasing my home or feeding myself? That's not what we need. Instead of saying we want to help people, you want to say something to the effect of, we want to work with the deaf and hard of hearing community. So verbiage is very important there. So for instance, I understand you're in New York. Is that correct, Ellie? Yes. So one would start perhaps with the Lexington School for the Deaf in Queens. Make contact with them, do some outreach with them, with the parent groups, and build from there. The National Association of the Deaf would be another place to engage with the deaf community as well, to work with, encourage, and to promote their interest. So where one goes from there, it's up to them. But that would be a good place to start. My final question is one that we ask almost all of our guests, which is what advice do you have for students, uh, specifically deaf and hard of hearing students who are watching this and are interested in either of your fields, PJ Emergency Management, or your field, Vivian Law, or STEM in general, policy, politics, sociology, etc. What advice would you uh, give to students who are interested in pursuing a career similar to yours? Well, I would say don't limit yourself. Some folks thought I was crazy working with FEMA. I've been working with FEMA since 2015 and I love my job. I've shown headquarters and I've shown those that I work in the office with all that I could do. Of course, I'm just one cog in the huge governmental machine, but there's some success there. So again, the point is don't limit yourself. Yeah, completely agree with PJ. Uh, the important thing is to not limit yourself. Don't let any barrier or limitations that you have uh, make you stop in your desire to pursue uh, your career in, in law, in preparedness, in any career that you want to pursue. For example, English is not my first language, it's my second language. And that's what one of the main barriers that I had when I began working with FEMA, even though I, I speak English and I'm bilingual, but there's always this like, um, you know, this fear of making mistakes, etc., speaking in public. But I always say, do it. Don't limit yourself, uh, go for it. And the sky's the limit always. If you want something and you work for it, you can achieve it. That is such a great note to end our interview on. I just want to thank both of you, Vivian and PJ, so much for your time and the interpreters as well. Fred and Nicole, thank you for being so great. We'd like to thank Anthony Allison for providing PJ's voice for the audio. Nina, you've disabled screen sharing. Hey, I just made you co-host. I'm sorry, can everyone go on mute? I think someone's stuck in the waiting room. You're breaking up again, Ellie. The recording has stopped. Politics Under the Microscope would like to thank Science Education and Policy Association for their support.